Get off your phone. It's like being at home. I'm really (laughs) (laughs) This will make the cut. I know it will. (laughs) Welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And I'm Scott Blank. (laughs) Scott, do you actually have a last name? No. He's He's like Spock. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can see that now. Uh, this week's episode, we will be looking at latest releases. We've got the film news. We've got our cool thing. And you've got us for the next hour or so. And we're going to kick off with... Well, I want to start off with uh, mentioning a, a yearly ritual okay. that I have with film. And people who know me like have heard me talk about this. And the whole idea is that I don't get a chance to watch every film. So... I tend to cherry pick like the films that interest interest me and I'm expecting to enjoy. This means that for the majority of the year, I watch films that are great and we praise it. And we've had it on all the shows so far. We've enjoyed every film. Have we? I was trying to think about when we talked about this idea. Have we praised everything that we've seen? To some degree, I don't think we've criticised anything. I think we've to some degree enjoyed every one of the films. Skywalker. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Skywalker. So, okay, so, so yes, we have. We mm. we are I mean, even Hobbs and Shaw, which was a very average film. That was our first show, wasn't it? Yeah, I got we we got some enjoyment out of. You see, this is the film show which shows love. Yeah, I don't think that's but, a bad thing, though. But I I I have this thing that if you only ever watch the good films, then you're going to become quite numb to like some of the lesser films, and you'll start to get a bit sneery and like a bit like, oh well, I'm not going to watch that because that looks like just like brain brainless drivel. So I have a ritual each year which I call the palate cleanser. And it's where you spy out a film that looks like it's going to be terrible. You watch it, and if it turns out to be terrible, it resets you. It's like a reset button on the back of your head to give you that lowest level of film watching so that you can appreciate the average films a lot more. Films such as Pirates of the Caribbean 4, when that came out, I enjoyed that because I'd had a palate cleanser about two months beforehand. It might have been an Adam Sandler film linking back to it. I just about to say the Sandler Uh, They're usually a good one to throw in there. And it just makes you appreciate the the average typical films a lot more for the rest of the year. You don't become a cinema snob. And that's one thing that I'm determined not to become a cinema snob. This is not the show for cinema snobs, though, isn't it? This is the show for film geeks by film geeks. And that's what we have a tendency <laughs> to do. We talk about what we like as opposed to what we critique. However, we did talk about Cats. Yes. <laughs> that, is, that is fair, yeah. Which, although we admitted that none of us have seen it, we're just discussing around the I've film. I've seen it. Have you now seen oh. it? Yeah, I, I, oh. I bleached it out of my head. <laughs> I brewed it at the bottom of the garden, uh, along with our own cats, dead mice. Ooh. And and we, I, I'd seen it when we talked about it last time, so I've, I've, I've gone enough detail to say, right, let's move on. <laughs> so what film news have we got? And, and, and of course, you're going to be talking about your palate cleanser. Yes, we'll, we'll get back reviews. to palate cleanser later on. Scorsese news. Oh, do we have Scorsese news? <laughs> just joking. Oh, no, that... <laughs> you know, my heart skipped a beat. Several beats. I just thought we've started the past four episodes with some news about Scorsese. I just thought the only news this week is that um, there's been no news. So He let's doesn't move like on. vegan sausage rolls. And it's kicked off. And he's kicked off against <sighs> Greg's for not being cinematic enough. Yeah. That's disgraceful. But <laughs> let's move on to some serious news. Del Toro has begun filming of Nightmare Alley. I'm not sure if you're aware of Nightmare Alley. I'm not. We are talking Guillermo del Toro. Not we are, yeah. To, uh... Not Benicio del Toro, yeah. who's uh, a completely different person. Yeah, or, it's a... are they? You've never seen them in the same room. Yeah, they've not worked on the same project. They, they, well, they after... did it. Now I'm going to be racking my brain for the rest of the show. Let us know. Let me know how to get in touch with us. <laughs> it's an adaptation of a novel by William Lindsay Gresham about a con man who teams up with a psychiatrist to trick people into giving them money. Uh, the novel was described by the author himself as a study of the lowest depths of showbiz and the sleazy inhabitants. I've and, worked in television. <laughs> and it already years. had an adaptation way back in 1947, a year after the book came out, which was reviewed as being quite strong in content. Do we know who was in the original? Not off the top of my head, no. There's some research to be done once we finish this podcast. But um, the remake is getting Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, and Willem Dafoe. Good cast. Ooh. So it's a solid cast, solid director, and like a, a juicy novel. And slightly out of Del Toro's usual film repertoire. Yeah. He's, he's normally very, like, fantastic and 
mythical and drifts into fantasy at least so yeah. we'll see it'll be an interesting choice so moving on from that let's move into fantasy or shall we say sci-fi fantasy and i'm going to pronounce his name wrong because i always do this denny villeneuve oh the, i know exactly who he means by yes, that I, that I, descriptor I, name or for <laughs> those who for those who aren't too sure about like french pronunciations dennis villeneuve now i get um, it <laughs> scott <he's>, instantly recognized <laughs> he's been talking about the blade runner film that he made blade runner 2049 which sadly underperformed. But despite it underperforming, he'd still like a chance to return to that world in order to tell more stories. He doesn't want to tell a sequel. He'd like to tell different tales set within that framework. As he says, it's such an inspiring place, the Blade Runner world. The problem I have is the word sequel. I think cinema needs original stories. But if you ask me if I'd like to revisit this universe in a different way, I can say yes. It would need to be a project on its own, something disconnected from both other movies. A detective noir story set in the future. I wake up sometimes in the night dreaming about it. Just him thinking about storylines within that framework. I would love to see him return to it. Did you get... I'm sure you both saw Blade Runner 2049. I, I loved it. And we've mentioned it on this programme. I thought it was a worthy sequel to Blade Runner. I thought it was. Its, it had its own identity. It had a feel that encaptured all the elements that I like about Blade Runner. And I love Blade Runner. And yet it felt... It's an, an entirely different film. The look, the palette that he used was a different palette than Ridley Scott's. It was it was bold. It covered some new ground while staying again familiar. It was it was one of those clever sequels that that a little bit like when Star Wars came back. It was familiar enough to be playing in the same sand sandlot, but it had enough new elements in it to keep me interested and you know the fact that the cinematography was just beautiful. It was a beautiful looking film. I liked it a lot. I was very disappointed that it underperformed. But then again, Blade Runner was the classic underperformer. It found its feet then through VHS uh, and through word of mouth and being a cult classic. And I'm hoping there's still room for Blade Runner to do that. And talking about uh, about Denis' work, see what I did there? I might skip over this. uh, (laughs) We must be due a Dune trailer or teaser very soon. We were looking at that, weren't we? It's, It's gone weirdly... Yeah, apparently a couple of days ago there was uh, there's there's rumours that some footage was screened to industry insiders and the initial feedback has been very positive on it and we're starting to see some concept art pieces filtering out bit by bit but the teaser artwork that I've been seeing as a fan of the books he's really captured it he's captured the imagery he's captured the like fantastical sci-fi setting. And it looks like it's going to have complete grandeur to it. I, I had confidence in him as soon as he was cast at, like, uh, announced as director just anyway. A stunning film. He knows how to tell sci fi. He's, he's a brilliant storyteller and he's got a great visual style that really suits the story for June. Whether it actually is a hit, I mean, the, the, they're being confident with it. It's a pre Christmas release. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, with June? Because it does come with a certain amount of baggage from the David Lynch film. That's my only relationship to June. I've never read the book. I never watched the TV series, though people tell me that was... It was pretty good. It was, pretty it, good. it was closer to the books, although it suffered from not having the budget to be able to do what it could have done. Is this a standalone, or is it the first part of the trilogy, or is it first part of a series, or is it just a standalone? Like it's like an adaptation of the first book, which could be even the first book is a standalone. Um, it did, it doesn't have loads of plot threads that are left hanging. They're picked up on late on later books, and like then it expands out. So this will work as a one-off film if it doesn't succeed. I would love for it to succeed because I'd love to see the next few books. I just want to see more Dune stuff on the big screen. I was happy with it on the small screen for the Sci-Fi Channel. You accept some of the foilings of that. I quite like the David Lynch film. I do. I've got a very I, soft spot for it. It was it was batshit crazy. I know David Lynch distances himself completely from it, but I think that it's got. He had a great visual style, and he tapped into the core essence of the book, even though there's huge chunks of it missing. We are definitely ripe for a perfect adaptation of it, and this so far is looking good. We there's got to be a trailer on the horizon. We've come a long way as audiences as well, haven't we, since Dune? And Dune was a, a lot to a lot to chew on back in the day because, yes, it's, it's, it's got a, a huge international following, a, a cultish following. But I think we've grown, we've grown more savvy about how we understand sci-fi and fantasy as, as general audiences because we've grown up now with, with Game of Thrones, which 20 years ago would have been unfilmable for, yeah. for television. As audience, we've become more perceptive to what, what we consider with, with fantasy anymore. My only concerns are, and a little bit like Blade Runner, have we forgotten how to do serious sci-fi as an audience? Does that still appeal? Because 
of the superhero diet that we've been fed and and and, and Star Wars to a degree. It'll be interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. Ever watched any experience with June yourself? No. You, uh, like, you like the beach. <laughs> yeah, I do like beaches. <laughs> um, I've never got near it. Um, I have a complicated relationship with David Lynch. <laughs> so, so. I, think, I think David Lynch has a complicated relationship <laughs> with David Lynch. It's it's so complex. It Speak, take. Uh, and speaking of David Lynch, apparently he's released a short film on Netflix. Oh, that's um, just completely under the radar that you have to search for to find it. Typically, David Lynch. I've not had a chance to watch it yet, but twenty minute short film which he stars in. Oh, I was intrigued. Oh, I want to see a YouTube channel. David Lynch is just gaming <laughs> or doing various bits of Minecrafting. <laughs> Did anybody watch Twin Peaks when it came back? Yes. Is anybody still baffled? Yes. But wasn't it just oh, it was momentous television because he got to do whatever he wanted? Yeah. To tell mean... a narrative on serialised TV, more so than the original Twin Peaks, that was just his, that just went anywhere that he wanted to do. And it had just moments of pure art. And it made... For a lot of it, not a lick of sense, but it was fantastically wonderful not making a lick of sense. Loved it. It was auteur filmmaking for TV, which we've never seen the like of. This is where it suddenly becomes interesting, where David Lynch can do that on TV now. Yeah. And I think it's audience acceptance of, of fantasy. But as audience become more like, we're, we're, we're niche blocks now, like you put together in several forms and that's your entire audience rather than playing to the masses. Do you think that's why we're getting more... Geeky and bigger. Yeah, because I think there's 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 a, a show for everybody now. I mean, TV at one point was in, incredibly homogenised, yeah. and especially American television. Now we're getting TV which has individual voices. Legion, Noah Hawley yes. series, oh, yeah. had, a, had a unique voice to it that played in, in the, the comic book world. Mr. Robot, another great example of... Yeah, they're, they're almost like authors. Um, Noah, Noah Hawley's Fargo. Yeah, is a is a unique piece of television now. Uh, I think England's grown up a little bit more like that because we had you know one writer yeah. like a Dennis Potter writing one series for so long, and we were slightly more unique and slightly more grown up. Though I do think you know those elements have now stretched into television, where where an author can have a show that that reflects who they are. But that, I don't watch it myself. But that's everyone who talks about Fleabag. That seems to be the oh, whole, absolutely yeah. the whole sort of raison d'etre is like her vision, her, 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 which is weirdly refreshing. Yeah, and and yet it's not unusual, I think, for England as yeah. as, as as TV, but for internationally, now. it's always been a, a a hive of writers doing twenty four episodes, and there's yeah. there's scattered consistency between the styles between them. But now we are getting, yeah, we're in the creative era. We're in the creators, the names of the creators become important. More so to some extent than the TV. Even so. like, you know, if you go back, look, Doctor Who, we now identify the series of Doctor Who, not just by the person playing them, but the chief writer behind them. Yeah. The Whereas we never force. did in the yeah. past. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like, oh, well, that was the Russell T. Davis era. Yeah. Uh, that's the Moffat era. And now we're on the Chibnall era. So the creative consultant behind it is as important as the stars involved. The, the Kevin Feige sort of cult. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fe- Feige's Marvel. You know, you identify the Mar- MCU as like everything that he's done. Yes. All the Star Wars discourse has been J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson. Yeah. I can't remember people talking about Irvin Kirshner and... Uh, no, but they no. always talk about George Lucas. Always. There's always going to be talk about George <laughs> I, I still think people are blaming him for the new trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, some people are because they're blaming him for selling off. The, yeah, the, yeah. the rights to it. They were quite happy to criticise everything he did on the prequels and then say, oh, he should, he should never touch it again. And then as soon as he's like, well, I'm not going to touch it again. It's like, why have you done that? But that's fandom <laughs> for you, isn't it? <laughs> and, and talking of which, uh, just jumping in, Colin Trevor has been in the, in the news over the last week. He has, yes. For his version of Star Wars, his vision has now sort of started to come to light. Which is an interesting thing. Is it Sour Grapes that he's now pushing it? Is, is Disney behind it in some ways? Lucas well, he's the Trevor O'Cut. Yeah, yeah no. oh, we're going to go through the Snyder Cut. He should have made this film, even though every fanboy didn't want him to make this film after uh, uh, Jurassic Kingdom. Yeah. But his script apparently is leaked online and, and his version of it and what has been retained by the JJ vision and, and what went. And they released... Or he confirmed what the title was, which was Star Wars Duel of the Fates. Mm-hmm. Shoe song. <laughs> what? How many how many T Rexes were there in the final scene? But they were all battling each other. One came in and like saved the day. I'd I kinda of be into that. With a <laughs> Kylo Ren riding him. 
Uh, can you honestly? Can you honestly I'll, I'll swing a fourteen bladed lightsaber? And be honest with yourself <laughs> and true to yourself. If that didn't happen, you wouldn't be like, "This is good." I can't honestly say that a would or wouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's... but having known my experiences with Jurassic World and Jurassic World Two: Fallen Kingdom, I probably wouldn't because I didn't like either of those films. If a T Rex in its little arms <laughs> puts on a lightsaber. He'd probably and, stab himself in the chest. I'd be punching the air. It'd be like one of those American screenings when everyone's whooping. <laughs> it's interesting that that it's it's appeared now, but it, it, it does it as I said before. Does it come down to sour grapes? They didn't get to see Vision. Is he doing a Snyder basically? Yeah. And and of course, fanboys are going to lap play, it up. Play, it's always that playing to the negative fanboy crowd that are out there saying like, "Oh, JJ's ruined the franchise." And all yeah. that's like, "Oh well, I could have delivered better. Maybe you couldn't." Yeah. Do you think it's a weird portent of where it, the industry might go in, like, post-Sony hack? Like, fanboys desperate to know all the what-ifs and yeah. what went Oh, wrong. yeah, we do live in a, a what-if society. Um, Dark Horse Comics have just done a, a release of unfilmed versions of famous movies. So mm. there's the the Rod Sterling. And they've all been great so far, the Rod Sterling version of Planet of the Apes, mm. when it was set in a contemporary 1960s world as opposed mm. to uh, the Flintstones world that Planet of the Apes was set yeah. in. <laughs> and uh, William Gibson's Alien 3 um, as an adaptation, a comic adaptation. And, of course, now we've got we, the, the Dan O'Bannon original, um, what was it called? Star Beast was the original yeah. Alien. Mm. That, and that's due out in, in April. So, yeah, we do live in these what-ifs. In fact, they did a Star Wars one, didn't they? They did Which, a Superman one, the whatever happened to the death of Superman lives or something to that. Oh, effect. no, no, I don't know that one. Um, it's really good, actually. Just right. to see what Tim Burton's Superman with Nicolas Cage, written by Kevin Smith, would have been in the 90s. And they made you... You go from, that's a jokey what-if thing you've seen on the internet to, oh, I kind of wish I'd seen that. Yeah, and then we'd have seen it and we'd yeah. have gone, why did this ever happen? Probably, but, but because it's the great what-if, you're left with, oh... <laughs> yeah, there's there's some, some intriguing, definitely intriguing variations on a thing. But we now live in a world where we can see a comic adaptation of William Gibson's Alien Three or Rod Sterling's uh, Planet of the Apes because the, the appetite's there to see the what ifs. My concern with this whole like people whose projects don't quite pan out and it gets changed before it goes to film and before it gets to release, like then suddenly like stoking the fires and going, well, this is what I would have done. This is what I would have done. Is that we're running the risk of getting to the stage where the fandom dictates what the film's going to be before it gets made because the studio's afraid of what repercussions they're going to get. I, I think the great... And I, and I totally agree with you on that. I think that studios are a little bit more savvy. I do, Yes, of course, they'd slightly play to that audience, but it's a bit like the infinite monkeys in a room typing because they'd be... No matter what you do, whether you listen to fanboys, yeah. and some series have done it, yeah. Where they've listened to fanboys and it's not reached and it's not it's not touched everybody else. You can, yeah. I think you have to be true to yourself. I think studios have to be true to themselves with the, with a vision that they're putting forward. And the what ifs will always exist. If we'd have shot it this way, would it have been different? Do you think we'll ever get? And this this would be terrifying to me. But do you think we'll ever get to the point we have, we have almost like when Jason Todd's fate was thrown to the comic book readers? sort of moment in a franchise where they just straight up get people to vote on an app. At the end of the, the end of the film you fill in a survey. Yeah. And that's going to dictate like some sort of bandersnatch choice is happening with the franchise. <laughs> I hope not. I think it's terrifying. It uh, is because terrifying, I think but... good filmmaking is about having a vision. And the most successful films are usually the ones with that clarity of vision. Ooh. And sometimes, you know, studios will interfere and it will go arse over tit and we don't we never get we're never satisfied with the film that we've got, but daring films are the ones that where we go. That was a successful mix. It's it's not an exact science. If it was, oh, yeah. every film would be a, a huge success, and, and sometimes it, it, it misses the boat. But I think that's what being creative and being artistic is about. It's sometimes not quite getting it, not quite getting it right. Absolutely. While we're on the subject of a studio not quite getting it right, uh, let's talk about Warner's and DC. And in particular, the recent news that now with the deal with J.J. Abrams with Warners, his bad robot production company is going to be taking charge of the Justice League Dark project. Yeah, I saw this. Scott, as the resident DC expert, Justice League Dark, tell us about it. Uh, It's kind of the collection of all their sort of darker, more supernatural anti-heroes, so to speak. So their roster includes your John Constantine's, your Zatanna's, your Swamp Thing's. So on and so forth. So it's, de- it's definitely the sort of movie monster slash magic slash 
gothy. Guillermo <laughs> <laughs> del Toro was attached at one point, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, never quite panned out because Warners were still at that point in time really trying to find their way with the DC projects. But what we know so far with the Bad Robot one is that whilst there's nothing specifically announced, it will be both big and small screen projects. The writing teams from Bad Robot are planning meetings over the next few weeks where they can pitch ideas of what they want to do and then Warners are going to like look to see what potential for Greenlight. What would be your ideal team up for a Justice League doc? Uh, I would keep, I'd keep the roster small. Uh, I, I think you'd, you'd want a John Constantine for how we'd barter back and forth with various You people. need that personality. I, th- I think he'd probably even be your lead and you'd, you'd have a Zatanna in there and then uh, Swamp Thing and then Dead Man. I've always wanted a Boston I've always wanted to see a Dead Man. As a TV series, never as a movie. Just the idea of him just inhabiting a body and yeah. then coming back out and then them not knowing why they're suddenly in the kitchen. So you can play, <laughs> you can play that for laughs uh, or film long, can't you? I, I'd see it as a TV series as opposed to a film. Mm. I think John Constantine, who was my favourite DC character above everything, I'm just going back through Hellblazer's reprints and, and just enjoying everybody's take on it. Some go in a, in a different direction than you would hope, but it's always interesting and it's always edgy. I would say TV series as opposed to a movie. It, it sits more comfortably for me because I think there's a lot of tales that you can tell. And look at, look at Suicide Squad, is it? As close as you can get it, you know, disparate group of characters brought together. Yeah. I think I think TV series and, and let let's flesh out John Constantine. Let's flesh out Swamp Thing and, and Dead Man and Zatara. They are to a lot of people kind of a, a, an unknown entity. And of course, you can throw back Guardians of the Galaxy, but it, Guardians of the Galaxy had that scope to be a, a movie. And I think this this would work over over TV. After a great, it's tough to find those like avenues of like superness that's not being touched. Like, I was really excited for Suicide Squad because it was the first time we're getting a collection of villains that was an interesting angle not played, and you get excited for your first proper representations of things. But we've kind of seen it all, so you needed something a bit left field and a bit new. Would it provide that? You could with the magic and darker elements, but you're essentially putting a team-up film. Yes. Almost every variant. (laughs) Yeah. Sticking with DC, so we mentioned on the last one about like the shots from the sets uh, where they've been filming the new Batman film, yes. and like people speculating on whether the, it was showing us some of the characters. Well, it turns out that the glimpses of Colin Farrell that had been seen were a bit of a red herring. It seemed with like the bleach blonde hair and like an umbrella. What, then he, he got a bit silver. He's fox not actually filmed any of his scenes yet. Apparently, the whole her thing was, according to the actor, a bizarre result of a home dying accident. Towards the end of production on another film, he was tinting his hair. And as he says it, that was colour five, the silver. It went purple. It then went piss yellow. Then it went whatever the hell that is. Foxy silver grey. And then I had somebody come by the house and fix it. Never leave him alone with a chemical kit. That's all I've got to say. He's got to, due to start filming his scenes within the next couple of weeks, him and Matt Reeves are still tweaking the aspects of the character. But we won't know anything about the full details of it until... He's actually in front of that lens. I'm looking forward to to the proper shots as opposed to yeah. uh, the publicity uh, photos. Publicity shots. There was something running today with some shots from Eternals because it started shooting in London. Mm. They're grainy. You don't have any idea what they're going on. It was shooting in an effect sequence, so there were cables and wires and all that sort of thing. But I, I'm looking forward to it. And I mentioned it in this last episode of when I got Starlog with Michael Keaton on yeah. the cover yeah. and... And that just blew me away. I'm looking for the official shots, not the grainy and the the, the rumor mill that spreads a, around grainy photographs like that. So I've got total faith in Matt Reeves to de- deliver a, a Batman that's going to be interesting and different. There's speculation I've just read today about what the Bat costume is going to look like. It's not going to look like any of the other Bat costumes. It's going to be m- much lo-fi, more in keeping with was it Year Zero? There's, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Scott Snyder version. So I'm interested in to see what it is, but I am looking forward to seeing the official shots. I remember seeing Clark Kent and Superman back to back to back with Christopher Reeve playing it, and I was mm. just a little kid at the time, and I must have looked at those pictures yeah. until he until they were in, burned into my identity because they they were just wow. 
they blew me away, but not grainy paparazzi shots. We all get excited to see the aesthetics of new films because it gives you clues as to the tone and all the rest. But more than anything, you want to see it in context with, and you want the characterization. Colin Farrell can look like Karen Farrell in every film. If if he's playing good characterization of Oswald Cobblepot, he will be Oswald Cobblepot yeah. in your mind. Like I don't need to know what colour his hair is, how big he is. <laughs> Depends how it's presented. Yeah. And then it's the galaxy around that that suddenly yes. forms where people go, well, he doesn't, but his hair's silver. Uh, penguin. Yeah, we've already found out now that, thanks to Andy, yeah. <laughs> that that's not what's happening. You know, it's all that that sort of... And then uh, there's a debate of, should Penguin be blonde? And, uh, well, Detective Comics 17, look, he's blonde. <laughs> I, it doesn't matter. Like, it... Enjoy it for what it is and <laughs> wait for the great shots. So moving over to Universal and uh, Doolittle. Is living up to its name. Oh, see, we did there. It's doing little at the box office in the States. It's still not released internationally, but at the moment, the projections are showing it's going to be a $100 million loss. Wow. We've already hit some big losses already with that and Cats. It's, it, it's not good for Universal. It's not boding well for them. The expensive reshoots that the film suffered didn't help, but also a lacklustre critical reception and the bad box office pretty much left them hoping that, like, the... European and the Chinese markets pick it up. However, the, the past two years, the Chinese market hasn't helped films like it did a few years ago when Transformers used to get. Yeah. Well, Star Wars suffered in the Chinese market, yeah. didn't it? So it's no longer a guaranteed cert that, oh, well, the Chinese market will double it. It doesn't help for the European release that we've got three weeks before that gets released here. Oh, bad press. Building a bad it up. press with reviews telling yeah. us. That like it's a film in which one of the lowest ebbs of it is a dragon with bagpipes shoved up its rectum that lets rip a great big fart. I did not know that was. Uh, I did not know that. Should be. Should we have issued I, a spoiler alert before that? Yeah. I, uh, a ticket has been sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those films which I think, from everything that I've I've read and been told that went in a, was it originally intended to go in a very different way and was much more closer to the books. Apparently it was um, that a lot of the reshoots were because they needed to make it more family friendly. It was all about like dumbing it down and making it child friendly because the original content was quite a serious tone. Yeah, I love the Doctor Doolittle books. I, I grew up with them. Uh, I remember the Rex Harrison film, which was, of course, <laughs> one of the great... Big flops of our time. I remember the Harry Enfield skits. Uh, I, <laughs> Eddie Murphy's my doctor do. And you shan't be replaced. So the rumours that I'd heard surrounding the film was that Stephen Gagan, who did uh, did Syriana, directed it and wrote it, had a different take on it. And then they were, as you said, they brought uh, writers in to, to, to do the gag. So I think he had a, a very different vision of it. He set it back in Victorian times, made Doctor Do a little Welsh again, which I know in the States that, that's been an issue with Robert Downey doing doing the accent. Has he, though? <laughs> well, who knows yet? If you've seen any clips of it, he's not done a very good accent. Right. But I just think it's one of those that, that got pitched to a studio that had a very, very individual director who was going to bring something to it and, and studio interference on it. And and that usually ends up with one of those films which is all over the place, tonally, all over the place with, with humour. Uh, and I think it suffered from that. And, and as you rightly said off-air that it does mean that a big star, with, with Robert Downey Jr. being the biggest star in the world, arguably at the moment, can't open a film. Yeah, we're no longer in this era where the name of the actor or actress who's headlining this film is a guaranteed cert. Tom Cruise has found that over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, look at The Mummy. He couldn't sell it like that. And yet, his Mission Impossible franchise does well. Yeah. yeah. So... It's projects that are more important than the actual people in them. Last year, we had Hobbs and Shaw, and whilst we kind of enjoyed it, we agree it's absolute nonsense, but it didn't find a, a great audience that you would have expected from something which had The Rock and Jason Statham in a Fast and Furious spin-off. Yeah. That should have been a guaranteed cert. Sadly, the names don't sell them anymore. We've gone past that era, but it ties into what we said earlier. We're now on to a creator-led era where, yeah. you know, the, the names of the people who are behind the scenes are becoming more important than the people in front of the camera. Look at Christopher Nolan's last three movies. They, there's yeah. not a lot of selling on premise, so you don't really know what the film's going to be much. You get a basic vibe of what sort of thing it's going to be, and everyone runs to it because it's Christopher Nolan. Yeah. They, they could, he could just release trailers which are just black screen with mm. the words, a Christopher Nolan film on, yeah. and then a release date, and then have posters which are just blank with just a Christopher Nolan yeah. film and the release date. 
and they would do great business because people are drawn to the name of the creator these days. Interesting. Uh, sticking with Universal, I'm sure that you remember uh, the old 1970s Kung Fu series. I loved the old 1970s. Any experience with it yourself, Scott? I've only experienced it vicariously through you mentioned it to me. <laughs> uh, and I was like, it's what, sorry? <laughs> I was very little, and yes, I am older than everybody else in the room. So I do remember that as from my childhood. There was a, for those who don't know, during the 70s, there was a huge Kung Fu. It was just, it was a torrent of, of, of movies and TV series. It was it was one of those things that was popular for a moment. Right down to even the aftershave, high karate. And yes, even and terrible had, ads, and a, a song. booklet on self-defense with every bottle. Just in case. <laughs> uh, and Kung Fu was sort of the breakthrough. It was originally based on an idea by Bruce Lee, but they didn't think a Chinese actor could, could carry a TV show. It got homogenized into being a Western um, with David Carradine, who was clearly not, not Asian oh, in I the think- lead role. I think I'm more familiar with this slowly as you're giving me more information. And the idea was that uh, a Shaolin monk who was uh, part Chinese, part American, killed the emperor's nephew and had to go and hide in the state. So he was on the run. So typical sort of reoccurring theme every episode. He was on the run while in search of his long lost brother as a, a Shaolin monk wanders through the American West. But what interested? So it had a, a very strong premise. What interesting thing happened to it? As, as David Carradine became much of a big star with the show, it sort of had a, a very counterculture part to it. He was barefoot. He was vegetarian, pledged peace rather than having to deal with everything. He always had the very poorly shot uh, Kung Fu sequence in every episode, which were clearly David Carradine wasn't a martial artist, but so they did everything in slow motion. But as he took more control over the show, uh, he had long hair and he was he was basically a hippie at, at the time. So it was it was a it was a very interesting show. In some episodes, it even dealt with sort of mysticism. It ran for, I think, three or four years. Uh, 1972 to 75, I believe. Right. So it, it really had a good run. It was brought back in different incarnations. Brandon Lee was going to bring it back at one point as, as being the star, uh, ill-fated Bruce Lee's son. It came back as Kung Fu, The Next Generation. There'd been talk about a, a TV version for, for goodness knows how long and a, a big film, which Bill Paxton was going to was going to uh, run at one point. But now it looks like it's back with the go-to action director of our time, basically. Yeah, David Leach, uh, Deadpool 2 and the aforementioned Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. Knows how to make action. Be interesting to see what he does with it. No casting at this point in time. We don't know who's going to be tipped into there. And this is completely separate from the TV production, which is still going ahead. Which is going to have a female lead. Female-led, one for the CW network. Right. So, you know, that, that, there's two different adaptations of the old Kung Fu series, like one for the big screen, one for the small screen. They can exist in the same universe if the, the film does go back to what the premise of the TV series yeah. was, which was uh, uh, a Shaolin monk in the Old West, which is a fantastic setup. It's such a simplistic framework. I mean, it, it's basically an old spaghetti western. Yeah. Given a different slant. It's exactly what they've been doing with Mandalorian. They've been doing exa- every episode. He does this every episode. He, for those who have not seen it, you. It, it, it. Yeah, you're right. Did <laughs> uh, the premise of Shanghai Noon steal from this? Though, Clearly. A little bit, yeah, I think so. I think there was an element of, of that in, in Shanghai Noon. It's, it's been rumoured for years that they were going to try and do a big screen version. Of course, every TV series from the 60s and 70s has somehow seemed to wind up on the big screen. I just hope they don't spoof it. Is this why Tarantino gave him the revival for Kill Bill? Was it based off the... Yes, he was a big fan of the yeah. TV series. Oh, Joe, when you learn a bit of side history, you never quite... Oh, this is the show. (laughs) Side history (laughs) abounds. Little nuggets of information. Let's round off the news with uh, the sad news of the passing of another Python, as Terry Jones has left the world. And it is sad, because I don't care how old you are, at some point in your life, Python has made you smile and laugh in in ways that... It was just the the incredible absurdistness of it. It reinvented. It was... pop culture to a degree uh, and the way that that funny wasn't for so, for so long and this is why people it's like the beatles people still talk about python it's just a big part of, of being british and that's what we're good at of doing absurdist incredibly well uh and and terry jones from what what we know he's the one who brought the absurdity into it yeah he's apparently primarily responsible for the Monty Python's Flying Circus, very surreal structure and the breaking away from a sketch before a punchline's hit and cutting straight into a different sketch. He loved that, like, complete catch people off guard, move them away from what they expect 
and play comedy in a completely different way. And he was one of the primary writers throughout the Python projects. And he was also behind the lens on three of the films, Holy Grail, Life of Brian and Meaning of Life, which are three of the most beloved. So we talked about this before coming on air. Do we all have a classic Terry Jones? Uh, my personally is in front of the camera where he seamlessly plays a woman in uh, Life of Brian, because I feel like that's his big iconic sort of role, so to speak. <laughs> and it's your big takeaway from the film. I've watched Life of Brian loads of times, but if someone says Life of Brian, I immediately see him in the black shawl. <laughs> and the lines. He's a very naughty boy. Yeah, immediately. 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 <laughs> <Funny. laughs> Uh, I can't identify one particular one, but I'm going to stick with the theme that he said. Whenever he dressed up as a woman on the Monty Python's Flying Cir- Circus TV series, he was hilarious. Whether it's like suddenly going, oh, I wet him! Or like falling backwards off a chair in like a, a speeded up bit of motion footage. Any of those ones, he had perfect comic, comic timing and he played them to such a bizarre degree. <laughs> Absolutely loved them. I've got one word, spam. Spam, beans, beans, spam, sausage. <laughs> ripping yarns, for those who remember Ripping Yarns, which uh, he wrote with Michael Palin. Yeah. It kind of crept out of nowhere. I think you can find them somewhere. And, and they were, you know, these boys' own stories, which him and Palin wrote, and, and sometimes he was behind the camera. They were fantastic. Tomkinson's school days, being attacked by the school leopard is still one of the funniest things, which <laughs> makes me weep with laughter. Uh, and, and things about about uh, about Terry Jones is he he wrote the original script for Labyrinth, even though little of what apparently appeared on the screen was his. But he he will be missed, and it's just it's just sad that we're kind of at the end of a of, of an era where the, these people who were just huge influences on our lives are going to start going, and uh, it just means that that Python's no longer Python. You can never in your head you always go they might come back and do something. Of yeah. course, now now clearly they can't. It's like the Beatles. You, while, while George was still alive, you could hope that they might come back and just do something. But once one or two of the most important players go, then that's yeah. it. So that's the news. And at this point, we're going to talk about our primary film review of the week. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us via Twitter on... At Filmfile UK. Leave a review, subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe because... It just makes us happy that we know that you're out there loving all this hard work that we do every two weeks because we do it for you. Honestly, we really do. Everything I do. Cue song. Do it for drugs. (laughs) There's other currencies. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I'm going wrong in life. (laughs) So the main film this week to talk about is The Grudge. Something terrible happened in this house. Now, anyone who enters, we're all bound together. Hello? Police department. This will never end. What will never end? The Grudge. And you braved this on your own because I let you down at the, at the, at the press show. Yeah. I want to get some historical context in here. Since 2003, when I first saw Jew on the Grudge, the J-horror, I have loved the Grudge films. Even I'm, the second Grudge? I'm a fan of the Grudge films. Uh, even the second Grudge, I've got a lot of love was that, for. Was that Grudge 2 more Grudge? <laughs> the Grudge. <laughs> Jew on the Grudge 2. Simple as that. That I mean, it was released in 2002 in Japan, and then it got like a subtitled version for the UK audience in 2003, which is when I, I, I watched it late at night at home. And I couldn't get off the couch at the end of it to switch the light on because it messed with my head so much. I just ended up just like pulling a blanket over my face and trying to go to sleep. It was a proper twisted, disturbed horror film. And I love the aesthetic of that kind of J-horror. And then we got the remake, didn't we? The US remake. Well, then we got the US versions, which started out okay because original director Takeshi Shimizu uh, was still on board for that and the second US version. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Bill Pullman. Yeah. They missed the psycho-trauma approach of the originals because they added in, like, an orchestra to tell you when to jump and doing the cat behind the curtain kind of, like, jump-scare moments. Everything you expect from a US film. But they still had some merit, and they still kept the lore and the mythos. Over the past decade, the J-horror franchise returned itself with spin-offs such as Black Ghost and White Ghost that told different stories but within that kind of framework. 
And then the actual back to the core story of that family and that house with the beginning of the end, the final curse. And then, bizarrely, Sadako versus Kayako, which pitted the ghosts from Ringu and Juon against each other, battling. I'm so glad I missed that. It's not a good film. I could have told you that before you've even <laughs> had to say that was not a good film. Um, but whilst the quality of the films over the whole franchise has been wobbly, for want of a better phrase, nothing could have prepared me for the horror of the latest film. So let's set the scene. This is a, a US uh, reimagining reboot of the for the Grudge series. It's a parallel story running alongside the US first and second films. And it stars John Cho, who you'll know from uh, Star Trek, and in the... And Harold and Kumar. And in the third series, uh, second series of the fantastic Exorcist TV series. Yep. Um, where does it go wrong? And where does it go right? Or does it go at all? It's it's an absolute, it's absolutely dreadful. It doesn't feel like a grudge story. It feels like a generic possession story, which the possession spreads from one person to another, to another, to another, where they've deliberately just gone, uh, can we shoehorn in a reference to the grudge? Oh, yeah, let's just tack on a scene right at the start of the film, set in Japan, like with the old house from that original one, and pretend that the curse has now been passed on for no reason at all. And then it does... I mean, what the Grudge films are known for as well is telling things out of sequence and it'll jump backwards and forwards in time to give you, like... Keep you off balance, basically. And it works well with them. With this, it feels as though they took the script, threw it up in the air, and then gathered the pages up at random and just decided to film it in that order. Because it just... it It's a mess. It jumps backwards and forwards for no... Apparently, reason. It's not like it's telling you a bit of backstory at a relevant point. It's just moving over to this character two years earlier and then over to this one three years later. Absolutely pointless mechanism to use. It's just a generic horror film and it's not even a good one at that. It relies so much on jump scares and the jump scares are signposted as a jump scare can be. You've got a cello. Is there a cellist in the scene? And then it goes quiet. The actress or the actor will let out a sigh of relief as nothing's there. One, two, three, four, five. Boom! And bearing in mind, I was sat on my own watching this because no one came to join me. I'm so sorry. And you can hold it against me for an awful long time. And this was the early hours of the morning. Now, bearing in mind what I said about the very first film, that I watched that on my own at home early hours of the morning, and couldn't get off the couch because I was so scared by the end of it. By the end of this one, I couldn't wait to get out the screen. And I, I was let out a sigh of relief when the credits came up. It's like, oh, you'd think, thankfully it's over. You'd think by now, studios would have realised that the J-horror craze that went on for an awful long time did not translate well to the US market. It didn't. I mean, cause the, the J-horrors have a particular style. And for me, it's the sound more than anything else in the J-horrors. In this new entry into the franchise, they even forcibly have every one of the possessed creatures doing that guttural (laughs) sound that only one character did. One of the ghosts did in the original Grudge. But now all of them do it. Anyone who dies and comes back as a ghost does that sound for no reason. You get a very tickly throat, though, when you die. You do. It's just a lozenge. If you just just give them a locket, you'll be fine. (laughs) They, they can't get the tone right because they're adding the orchestra. They're not having the disturbing white noise sounds or weird background light wobbles. And they're keeping it too clean. It's too precision-led rather than feeling unnerving and offsetting. And that was always the thing with, with J-Horror for me. It it did have a sort of an off-kilter approach to it. Um, Gore Verbrinsky did the, the Ring. The Ring adaptation. Adaptation. Yeah. And it was just too clean and music video-y, lucky. And rather than that sort of almost realistic approach, that sort of dark around the edges feel that J-Horror did very, very well. And and there are two different languages. Japanese filmmaking and, and US filmmaking, European filmmaking are different languages. And the, the conceits don't necessarily cross. Everybody just sees a monster or a ghost or whatever and, and thinks that's what it'll take to make it work. Because, because the ring in, in the American version spent most of it trying to explain the plot. Yep. Instead of just letting it be, it was all a, the discovery of what was on the videotape. I wouldn't even limit it to uh, J-horrors. They, they, they do this all the time, like Rack with Quarantine. They just take a idea from a different branch of cinema that's vibrant and told within its own sort of languages, and they just homogenise it, yeah. throw it out there. Few jump scares that'll that applicate our horror audience. Move on to the next one, and that's become the the language of most modern horror. 
that it is jump scares. It's the quiet, quiet bang. Mm. Yeah. And, and just, just to just to point out one film that did work for me, which was a, an adaptation, was uh, Let Me In, Matt Reeves' film. Yeah. Because that stayed true to what the original film was about and, and had, a, had that sort of underscore of it being about childhood rather than just being about a monster. I think that's what, probably the only time I think it's worked really well. So you've got a grudge against the grudge. I've got a huge grudge against this film. It is the worst of the franchise. It can't even be considered as a film so bad that it's funny. Oh. It's a film so bad that it's dull and lifeless. Not one of the scares actually scared me. Nothing made me jump. And I was just felt nonchalant about it by the end of it. And it died at the box office. So this is the palate cleanser that I mentioned earlier on the show. This film has now set my expectation of films so low for the rest of the year that I am going to enjoy the heck out of so many more films. I can't wait for your review of Doolittle now. <laughs> <laughs> What else is out in the cinema at the moment? What are we looking forward to? What's playing? Uh, 1917 still doing gangbusters box office wise. Yeah, I mean, I've had a chance to see 1917. It's doing great business at the box office and deservedly so. For those who don't know, it's Sam Mendes' war film following two young soldiers racing through the trenches and into no man's land as they race to get a message to the frontline forces to stop a big Porsche that is leading into an ambush. A single take approach through the film draws you into the characters because you are thrown to just follow them and you they're, they're your link to this world. And their journey through the film is so impressively done because it, it, it's done in a way that where they start, they're still fresh, ready soldiers, ready for fights. It's like, yes, yeah, sir, the war, da, 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 and they're still up for it. And then as they travel through, they get to like the border for no man's land where the troops are so fed up of it that they got like Andrew Scott as a very nonchalant commanding officer, just like, oh, this will never be over. If you, you you really want to go over there, that's on you guys kind of attitude. And so they've lost the passion for the fight. Then you get over the other side of no man's land. The allied soldiers that they encounter there are the invading soldiers. So they're up for fighting and they're still gung ho. And then you get to the like ones who've been in the war so long that they just want to die. And it's a great journey to show all aspects of war. But what makes it more striking? Cinematography. Which is Roger, the great Roger Deakins. Great Roger Deakins, who shows once again that he's a master of getting perfect shots and beautiful images. There's one sequence in it set at night, running through ruined village, and the only lighting is the signal flares going up, and it casts a very eerie, surreal, kind of nightmarish view towards the whole thing. You sit watching it going, is this real or is it in his imagination? Then you're like, oh no, it is real. It's too real. And it's beautifully done to really throw you into like that. This is the horror of war. Absolutely marvellous film. I can't recommend this film enough. It will be running for a while because it's still doing business. It's one of them that is just going to keep bringing people back. And the award nominations that it's getting, well deserved. So other couple of notables are, we've got Lighthouse opening in, in the next couple of weeks. Next week, is it? Lighthouse? It's, uh, next week, Light, there's Lighthouse, there's Richard Jewell. Uh, Armando Anuche's take on david copperfield yep that's out now looking forward to that i've just started watching his new series on sky atlantic the one set in space have you seen it yet i've not there. oh i've been hearing a lot about it i'm gonna, I'm gonna embark uh, i think that style that that he just does so well yeah so at this point in the program we go around the table and say what's your neat thing what are you watching listening to uh playing with Andy, what have you got? <laughs> what have you played with this week? <laughs> well, I'm not going to share what I've played with this week. My neat thing is TV. I, I was humming and hawing at this point in time because today two things dropped that I've been waiting for. The first one is Sabrina, season three. Season three on which Netflix. Which I absolutely love the Sabrina. Like, really it's imagine. been great, hasn't it? It's, it's been... how to do teen horror yeah. better than most teen horror movies. It's absolutely marvellous. So I've got that to immerse myself in. But... Star Trek Picard also dropped. First um, episode of that. What platform is it on? In the UK, it's showing on Amazon Prime. I don't know what it's showing on in other it's parts of the CBS, world. It's CBS, isn't it? The CBS network, uh, uh, all access, the access one. But there's been the there's been a lot of expectation around Star Trek Picard because, you know, you're going back to a beloved character from the next generation, which is one of the most beloved of all the Star Trek series. And it hits the ground perfectly. I'm not going to talk about the story on it because it is quite spoilerific in that very first episode. There's not a lot that I can touch on without making people go, oh, well, that's ruined that reveal for me. All I'll say is that visually it's stunning and Patrick Stewart is on absolutely marvellous form. Can't wait to see that. Scott, what have you got for us? 
Um, I've not actually started reading it yet, but I I, I bought a book uh, by Richard Iwadi, and it just um, spoke to me in some way because it's it's Richard Iwadi presents. That'd be an um, audio book if it spoke to you. Well, very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Iwadi presents the grip of film by Gordy Lashur. And uh, Godly Show's passionate about film. He eats film, he drinks film, and sometimes he'll even watch a film. And that just spoke to me. It sounds like some people <laughs> we, you might know. Yeah. Not just, far removed from this podcast. It just spoke to me, so I feel like I'm going to uh, read, digest film in my own way with that. And that'll be my week. Uh, Mind's TV again. Uh, currently running on Sky Atlantic, Stephen King adaptation of The Outsider, which has been absolutely fantastic. HBO, for the majority, have more hits than misses. Finished Watchmen, which I thought was fantastic. One yeah. of the great endings to a TV series. Beautifully done. Went beyond expectation. When we talk about what comic books can do, uh, once they're in, into the adaptation world, a bit like Joker, sometimes something like Watchmen comes along with brilliant. Uh, the first season of, of True Detective. This is closer to True Detective. It's a, a Stephen King's uh, novel adapted by Richard Price, who, who did Clockers, did a lot of work with Scorsese. It's told as a slow burn detective story. So the, the premise is simple. There is a murder, a horrific murder of, of, a, of a young boy and a prominent member of this small town who's the local coach, played by Jason Bateman, who was also one of the producers and directed the first two episodes is accused of doing. People have seen him around town, seen him covered in blood. However, he was uh, uh, out of town at a conference where multiple witnesses saw him. And this is the element that goes from just a, a, a an interesting detective story into the realms of supernatural. So far, we're up to episode three. It's gripping, but it is a slow burn. It's dark. It's a true successor to the first season of True Detective. It's a fabulous series, incredibly well acted. Uh, ben Mendelssohn, the Australian actor, who, who just now we used to see him playing villains and sometimes quite over the top villains. You know, he was in Rogue One. Uh, he was the Skrull in uh, Captain Marvel. He does have a tendency to do over the top villain in this. He underplays it as a small town, downbeat, haunted cop. It's just fantastic. Well worth it. Highly recommended. And I know that we generally only pick one uh, thing to mention, but I think you'll all agree that we need to also just point people in the direction of season two of Titans is now on Netflix. Still to in watch the UK. it. Oh, it's super fun. It's you super fun. It. Uh, any show that, I mean, we have this with The Flash, mm-hmm. that in its first season, it threw out King Shark. And you're like, wow, they go in there. Where with this, with Titans, crypto. Okay. And if a show's got the confidence to throw in crypto, you, you, you know it's got the confidence to just deliver what it wants. Thoroughly enjoying it. You had me at a hello. that's it for the film file for this week we'll see you in a couple of weeks same back channel same back time take care I don't know (laughs) I didn't didn't commit (laughs) to